Welcome to the True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. Hi, and welcome back to the show. On today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing Amit Puri. Amit is a mortgage broker, and he's also a chartered accountant. And today's episode is a little bit longer than your typical episode that we've done. We really go deep on some issues around mortgages and mortgage financing, so I'm going to get to it right away without a typical intro portion here. Some of the things that we talked about were the mortgage market right now, where mortgage rates are and where they're likely to go this year. We talked about things that every condo investor needs to know about qualifying and actually getting a mortgage on their investment units. So it would be helpful for anybody who's a first-time investor to understand how that works and how the banks will qualify you on, on a mortgage. And also probably the most frequently asked question that I have gotten over the years about mortgage financing from condo investors is the question of, is it better to buy a property in your personal name or is it better to incorporate and buy it in a company name? And so that is definitely a question that you'll want to hear Amit's answer to, speaking as a mortgage broker and also a chartered accountant. So he's really got a broad knowledge base to um, speak to you. And I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. So without any further delay, here is my interview with Amit Puri. And if you want to get the show notes for this episode and links to reach Ahmed and everything that we talked about here on this show, you can go to truecondos.com slash Amit, A-M-I-T, and you'll see all the links there. So here it is, my interview with Amit Puri. Welcome to the True Condos Podcast with Andrew LaFleur, the place to get the truth on the Toronto condo market and condo investing in Toronto. Okay, it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Amit Puri. Amit is a mortgage broker and he's also a chartered accountant. Amit, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't you start by just telling everybody a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got sort of started in the real estate industry and mortgages, and uh, just help us to get to know you a little bit better. Absolutely. So um, I went to uh, the Schulich School of Business back in 2000, I graduated um, joined KPMG as a chartered accountant, uh, which is completely a 180 from the business that we're in now. Um, learned the art of investing, uh, what it means to be a client, what it means to be an investor. Uh, spent a few years uh, at Deloitte, which is another accounting firm, uh, learning transaction business, which means uh, buying and selling businesses, buying and selling property. So I've always had a knack for uh, you know, being on the business end of, of client meetings. In 2008, I joined TD Bank, and over there is where I learned the mortgage business. I was having a casual conversation with my VP um, in the strategy department and said I would like to be more client-facing, and he pitched me the idea of doing mortgages, and and I never thought um, it would lead to the success that it has, but I decided, you know what, let's give it a shot, and I thought, you know, if I didn't make it in this industry, I could always go back to being an accountant at TD. And within less than 18 months, um, I was a top uh, 20 performer at TD um, nationwide. So out of 850-plus representatives, I was in the top 20, um, was given the Rookie of the Year Award, and um, that led to me having the confidence to 
uh, opening up my own uh, mortgage brokerage uh, in 2002, as well as my own uh, accounting firm. And that is where we are today. And so I've been in the business of mortgages for almost five and a half, six years, and have been an accountant for, for almost 11 now. And so I find that those two uh, synergies help me guide my clients uh, towards investments, towards better uh, saving opportunities, whatever the, the nature of the conversation requires. That's great. Yeah. So obviously, you know, some people might look at that and say, wow, he was a chartered accountant. He's working for KPMG and Deloitte and TD and, and you know, he's at the top of the world, so to speak, for the, the accounting world. And then he became a mortgage broker. What's up with that? <laughs> but uh, and, uh, so obviously it's obviously it's worked out very well for you and you still uh, you still have your accounting practice as well. But uh, maybe tell us about that transition sort of going from the in a sense, the corporate world to the entrepreneurial world and going out on your own. For sure. And, and you know what? As, um, as it sounds, the split comes from both my parents, my mom and dad. Uh, my mom came from a business background. Her entire family is all self-entrepreneurs. Uh, and my dad was a bank guy. He worked at Royal Bank for 25 years. So growing up, I had both sides of um, opportunities to see how it feels to be self-employed, how it feels to worked for a company for almost 25 years. And so, you know, one of my parents thinks I'm awesome and one thinks I'm nuts. So it always depends on which one you're talking to. Um, but um, <laughs> what I've seen is that when I was in accounting, people would always say, you're people-oriented, you have the ability to talk to people, get out there and sell yourself. And so I did that. And then when I was out there selling myself and selling TD and selling... Uh, the mortgage business, everybody would say, you're an accountant. Why aren't you doing accounting? Then I would meet people who would say, I'm uh, self-employed. I need financing. And so when you put all three of those requirements together that people were demanding of me, being an accountant with the ability to do financing was a, a home run. And so now my mortgage clients become my accounting clients and my accounting clients I'm able to service directly who need financing. And, you know, um, I give it to my professional training that I received at, you know, these, these top 50 companies like KPMG and TD and Deloitte that they gave me the skills necessary to be able to handle that workload to, to, to structure my practice in a way where uh, there is automation amongst the staff and there's the ability to uh, to give me the opportunity to still um, provide that service that my clients need on both the financing and the accounting side. And to me, they both go hand in hand because if you're in business, you need money. And if you're trying to make money, you need money or you need an accountant. So it's been a really good um, offering to my clients. And I, I can make a spreadsheet with my eyes closed on, on how to make investments. So it's something that I always give to my clients as well. That's great. Um, let me shift gears and talk about the mortgage market right now and what's happening there. Obviously, big news recently is the Bank of Canada actually, to many people's surprise, um, actually lowered the prime rate. Were you surprised by that? Did you sort of see that coming or was that, that kind of catch you off guard? Hey, you know what? It did not catch me off guard. I'm going to throw another because of the economic situations that are happening across the world as well as Canada. And so 
to answer the question, you never know which the interest rates are going to go because nobody has a magic uh, crystal ball. But the interest rates at the bank, they're only based on a couple of factors. They're based on the 10-year bond that's being sold by the government, and they're based on how the economy is doing, if it's stable, if he's growing, etc. And so when you look at a trend over the past year or even the last six months, both are on the decline. And, I mean, I could talk for hours about it because it's my accounting slash economic side that's turning on, but the interest rate is a representative of which way the Bank of Canada believes the market is going to go. And so uh, there are pros and cons. Um, the interest rate coming down is good for home buyers. It's good for investors. Um, but it has a negative connotation to it as well. It's it's caused the loonie to go down. Um, it's going to cause exports to decrease because we can't sell overseas. There's going to be huge job losses because of the oil industry, which is seeing oil at a much lower price these days. So there are pros and cons to to the deduction in the prime rate. Um, and I think the market will decide what it wants to do. We might see a boom in, in housing. Uh, we might see a decrease in exports, and that balance will determine which way the Bank of Canada wants to go over the next few months. But I'll be a little bit uh, bullish and say that I think they'll decrease the prime rate again another quarter point. Interesting. Um, you know, I've heard uh, speculation as early as the next meeting, which is in March of 2015, but to be honest with you, Andrew, like I was telling people the prime rate's going to be going down for a year, year and a half, because it hadn't moved since September of 2010. So nobody knows what near means to the Bank of Canada. It could be the next meeting. It could be another year from now. But I don't think it's going to rise anytime soon, if I can. Um, just going back to what one thing you're saying about exports. That's interesting. You're saying you think exports could be hurt, but everybody seems to be saying exports will be helped, obviously, by a, a lower Canadian dollar making our stuff cheaper to the rest of the world. So what can you expand on what you mean by that exactly? By exports, I'm talking solely on the oil, not consumer goods, not forestry, not uh, technology or anything like that. Just to try and explain it in, in a nutshell, the price of oil has fallen dramatically to, to as of today, around maybe $45, $47 a barrel. But the problem is, is that what what the economy is based on is that the cost to develop a barrel of oil is anywhere between 60 and $80. And so we're going to see a huge either uh, stoppage in the production of oil, especially in the Alberta shale and the oil sands and all that, or we're going to see a huge pile of supply that's not going to be sold until the price returns back to normal. And that's what is causing the dollar to fall because of Canada's huge dependency on commodities such as oil and forestry and paper and so on. Um, so when I was talking about exports, I was specifically in my mind uh, talking about oil, which is causing everything else to move in the market. Ah, gotcha. Um, now, I'd like to get your commentary on the fact that the when the Bank of Canada lowered their rate uh, a couple of weeks back, the banks did not follow suit. So why don't you tell us what happened there and, and why you think it happened and what's going on with the banks? So when I was at TD, I used to work in uh, enterprise strategy, which was essentially the consolidation of um, all the different divisions of TD. So TD is TD Securities, TD Waterhouse, TD Canada Trust, the branches, 
TD Corporate, TD Wealth. There's so many different silos, but everybody knows the bank is TD. So the reason I mention that is banks are solely judged on their NIM, which is NIM, which is net interest margin. Stockholders, share price, everything is based on how much net interest the bank generates. Net interest is the difference between what the bank receives for money it loans out and what it gives customers for money that's sitting in savings and bonds and so on. So what happened here is that the banks have mortgages outstanding. Let's let's use a number of $100 billion, for example, and it's much higher actually. But let's use $100 billion as the amount of mortgages outstanding. Now the cost of those mortgages is now 0.75 for the bank, plus 2%, which is their cost, which should have made prime 275. But instead, the banks only reduced prime to 285. That difference of 0.1%, which is also called 10 basis points, literally translates into $100 million of additional profit for the year if they don't pass those savings on to the customer. Now, you could say, are the banks being greedy? Or why are they keeping that much extra money? The reason they're doing that, at least I believe, and this is not something substantiated, but I think they're trying to save and build up their cash pools for if there's a rainy day coming up or if there's any issues. So they are going to cash in an extra $100 million if they don't change the prime rate, um, just based on that spread, uh, which is the net interest differential between what they got um, from the Bank of Canada and what they passed on to them. Right, so $100 million added to their bottom line at the expense of the consumers. Why Why do? You, why is it that every... $100 billion, just to jump in, but the right. bank is holding probably, you know, the top banks like RBC and TD, they're holding like $200 billion in mortgages. Wow. The smaller ones could be $80 billion, $100 billion. So when I say $100 billion, you know, as a, as a total top five bank, I'm sure it's around seven hundred billion. So we're probably talking seven hundred million dollars of extra profit just sitting at the banks in a single year. Right. right. But I mean all of you see those numbers only the banks know who are working in the accounting department. Yeah. Um why did all the banks act in unison? Like is it some kind of a collusion cartel scenario? Like why did no one break rank and lower the prime rate like do they do these guys all talk to each other and say okay what are you going to do what do you let's all not do this together you know what i mean <laughs> i hear you i mean I'm- in a free market you would think somebody would say you know what screw it we we're going to give this money to the consumer and, and we'll gain more market share because of it or something to that effect but everyone in unison made the same decision so how does that work i think what happened was the the rates were cut um about a week and a half before any of the banks decided to change their lending rate. And the only banks that actually changed it were uh, four of the top five, which was TD, I might be wrong in the information, but it was TD, Royal, BMO, and I believe CIBC. And the following day, Scotia changed it. And then the following day, all the other banks in the country changed it. Um, you know, the Tangerines and the, uh, the Home Trust and the MCAPs and all the other national bank and all the other banks that are out there to give mortgages. The smaller institutions are going to follow the big guys 
Am I going to say there's collusion amongst the big guys? I'm not sure. They probably do discuss the impact of of passing on the savings, and I'm sure there were discussions held amongst uh, senior management at all the top banks that, you know, should we not pass the full savings on and, and keep a reserve, which translates into those numbers we just spoke about. Um, I think as soon as another bank drops their prime, let's say from 285 to 280, the other ones are going to follow. It's a domino effect. Nobody will be left behind. So I think they'll take their time getting to the full deduction. And if we do see another reduction in the Bank of Canada rate in the next coming months, who knows? They might keep a part of that as well. Um, so we don't know where uh, the prime is going to end up. Should the banks pass it on to the consumer in full? The answer is yes and no. Do you trust the consumer with extra money? Do you think they'll inject it back into the economy? Or do you think that the banks are better suited to, to lend out that $100 million to businesses that need it? And so that's going back to our original you know, few questions that the rate coming down is good for home buyers and, and people see a difference at the pumps and people see a difference in their mortgage payments. But you know what? TD Bank can do a lot more with $100 million than you know, each of us would do with an extra $500 a year. And so that's kind of where the trade-off is. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what plays out. Very interesting. Um, what, uh, speaking of mortgage rates today, like what kind of rates are out there right now for on the fixed and variable side? What, what are people getting now? What do you think the rates are going to be this spring if, like you say, rates actually might go down? Sure. What's what's happening right now? There's 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 a there's a there's a relationship that I always like to explain when I'm talking to anybody, and that is that variable and fixed rates are inversely related, and inverse means they do the opposite most of the time. A, a year and a half ago, when fixed rates were being offered for two nine nine and two eight nine rates that were never heard of, the variable rate had no discount at the time. It was prime minus zero. So everybody locked into the fixed rates because it doesn't make sense to go with a prime rate mortgage. As and 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 five years ago, when the fixed rates were four percent and three point seven nine percent, we saw variable discounting that we hadn't seen since in the, in the last fifty years, which was prime minus point nine or or prime minus point nine five, which some people still have today. Now that the market hasn't in the past number of years hasn't adjusted, it hasn't gone up, the GDP hasn't changed. The prime rate is prime minus 50, 60, even 70, and the fixed rates are staying around 2.99, 2.89 as they were before. And so my answer to your question, where are the rates going to go? I think when the, when the bond yield and the market change, the fixed rates will rise. And that will give us a deeper discount on the variable rate. And if we don't see that, we might see a pullback of the variable rate. And the reason for that is banks expect interest rates to go up over the, over the number of years that they lend money. And so if they offer you a discount of prime minus 0.6, you know, today that means 2.25, but they're hoping in year three and year four that that goes up to 2.5 and 2.75 so that they can, you know, cash in on, on those interest differences that they were expecting. So um, I think we can continue to see lower rates over the next many years. Uh, which one will stay low is what I'm saying is always fluctuating. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, okay. Um, so if, let's say, let's play the hypothetical game here. If the prime rate drops again another quarter point in, say, March, will we see, what will we likely see? Will banks um, keep the variable rate discount the same? Will it increase or will it decrease? I would say that they would keep the uh, variable discount not the same. They're actually going to reduce it. Uh, and the reason for that is it goes back to the banking model. Um, banks don't want the interest rate for the cons- – they don't want to provide an interest rate lower than about 2%. And the reason for that is not because they're trying to make money. It's because they're trying to uh, pay for their fixed costs, you know, branch costs, hours, employees, heating, hydro, computers, equipment, all that stuff. Generally, banks are supposed to earn about 2% so that they can just maintain their cost. Um, it's like a grocery store. You know, the, the milk is on sale, but the rest of the grocery store, which is what brings the consumer in, but the rest of the grocery store is built to, uh, to, to make sure the, the, the company stays afloat. So the same thing happens with mortgages. There is a misconception. Banks don't generally make much money on mortgages. Um, it actually, they break even. The money comes from uh, the other divisions of the bank, the savings, the safety deposit boxes, the lending, the, um, you know, the investment banking arm. And so to answer your question, going back to the variable rate, I think if the variable goes down again, we'll see a decrease in the discount. It'll go to 0.4 or 0.5. And the reason for that is for new mortgages being given out, you wouldn't generally see an interest rate of 1.9 or, or 1.8 because it's below their bottom line in terms of what they need to earn to pay for their expenses. Right. Yeah, very good tips to think about as people are, you know, anybody who's listening right now who's thinking about or who needs a mortgage, maybe they're closing on a condo or something they purchased years ago um, and it's coming up for um, occupancy and closing, Something to think about if they're thinking about going variable, probably a good idea to get approved and locked into something now as opposed to waiting because like you said, there there's a lot of speculation that the rates will um, actually go down. And so if you're thinking about getting a variable in particular, I guess now would be a good time to uh, to, to call a guy like you and lock in your, your rates. Would you agree? Yeah. I agree. Um, let's... I want to ask you a couple of specific questions speaking to the condo investor who might be listening. Um, mortgages on investment condos, what what do people need, maybe speaking to the first-time condo investor, trying to wrap their head around getting that first mortgage for their first investment property, um, how are the banks looking at you? Uh, what does a person need to know about you know what they need to be able to qualify for a mortgage on, a, on an investment property? For sure. And, and, you know, I actually have a couple of simple uh, tips and, and calculations that, you know, our listeners can, can do. The first couple of things that you need to check off on the list is, um, do you have good credit? And, and good credit is subjective. You know, do you pay your bills on time? Uh, is your Equifax score uh, above 600, 650, 680? Each one has a separate requirement. Uh, and um, do you have a job? Uh, have you been working? Do you have steady income? These are certain things that um, if if you can say yes to, uh, the next set of uh, tips actually are easy to follow. As an investor, you can afford five times your income as a mortgage. That is the rule of mortgaging. 
I'm making it simple. It could be 5.2, could be 5.25, could be 4.9, but let's use 5 as a number. If the average person who's investing in condo markets earns about $100,000 a year or $80,000 a year, if you multiply their income 5, that is the mortgage amount that they can have. So if someone earns 100000 they can qualify for a mortgage for 500000 That is how the math works with all the lending companies. The next question that an investor will ask is, what is my monthly payment? The monthly payment is also an easy calculation. For every $100,000 mortgage, the monthly payment is approximately $400 a month. So if you have a mortgage for $500,000, your monthly payment is $2,000. Those two numbers help you in less than 30 seconds figure out, can I buy a property and how much is it going to cost me a month? If the average new condo is, you know, Andrew, what would you say, about $300,000, $350,000? Sure. Yeah, that's about about right. Yep. The mortgage on that would be two fifty or two eighty. Let's use let's use two fifty as a number. So at two fifty, the income that you need is fifty thousand a year because fifty two fifty divided by five would be fifty, and the mortgage payment would be one thousand a year because every hundred thousand is four hundred bucks, so two hundred fifty thousand would equate to a thousand dollars. Those are the numbers that investors need to use to determine: Do I qualify? Can I afford it? And what? Um, and is this something I can do? Now, a couple of things to tack on to that. When you are buying a home for yourself, for primary use, the banks allow you to put as little as 5% down, subject to a whole set of rules set by the government, which is from an agency called Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation, which is CMHC. They also have other companies like Genworth and Canada Guarantee, which do the same thing. But the reason I bring that up is, as an investor, if you're buying a second property that is now not your primary residence and you are required to put at least, and here's a range, you're required to put between 20 and 35% down. Now, let me just make some clarity there. Um, it depends on if you live in Canada, if you're self-employed, if you're working, and I don't, I don't we can jump on that maybe in another question, but... At a minimum down payment is about 20% for the investor who's buying a rental. Right. Um, so, yeah, let's say typical scenario, somebody owns their own home. They've been paying their mortgage for, let's say, you know, five or ten years, and now they want to get an investment property. Um, you know, they've got, you know, they've got extra savings paid up. They have the 20%. So is it, you know, how does it work exactly if, for the first-time investor to understand if, if they've got that 20% on that investment property, they're planning on renting it out? Um, do these uh, rule of thumb, the, the five, you know, the, the, the five times your income, does that still apply in this case? Or um, how does it work when you've got that 20% saved up for that investment property and you're planning on renting it out and the rents are going to cover the monthly costs? So to answer this question, what I'm going to do is I want to try and explain the different strategies you would use as an investor, whether you're dealing directly with your bank or, or, or a broker like myself. The answer to the question is every bank 
that is approving the mortgage has different requirements. It's like, you know, a, a, a Honda and a Toyota. They're both cars. They both get you to A and B, but why do people go with one versus the other? The same happens with RBC, TD, Scotia, CIBC, National Bank. The list goes on and on. And I don't want to single out a single institution because the rules are constantly changing. But let me give you a couple of examples. Bank A, which could be TD or Royal or Scotia, I'm just giving them letters just to keep it anonymous. Bank A will do rental properties at 20% down. Bank B will only do them at 25 and Bank C will do them at 30 Now, if the consumer only has 20%, that tells me, as well as yourself, that there's only a select few banks that we can go to. Now, if we go to Bank A with a 20% requirement, sometimes the bank you're dealing with, they they might prefer people who are employed. They might prefer people who are self-employed. Sometimes the banks deal with foreigners. Sometimes they don't. So when we're going through this matrix of, you know, do I have 20%? So which banks do I qualify with? Okay, I qualify with Bank A and Bank B. Now, does Bank A offer um, mortgages to people who are self-employed? Yes or no. If they do, we work with them. If they don't, we check if Bank B does, and hopefully they do. You can get into scenarios where the situation is not possible at all. You know, an investor says, I only have 10%. I'm self-employed. I don't declare any income. At that point, you know, the options are extremely limited um, where you're maybe even having to deal with a trust company. So to go back to the question of 20% down, with 20% down, there is always a solution amongst the top five banks, TD, Scotia, National, CIBC, BMO. It just depends which bank's policies you fit into. And that is something that it's difficult for an investor to do on their own. Right. It's easier to discuss with an agent like yourself or a broker like me because we. It's different in every scenario. Different in every case, and so uh, it's a common question that gets asked. But unfortunately, I guess you're saying there isn't like a straightforward answer. It's a case of, like you said, every every bank has different rules, um, and every person will have a different profile. Um, which will be, you know, a good match for some lenders and not a good match for others. Exactly, exactly. Um, that I could talk, you know, a hundred examples of different scenarios, but the, the the gist of it is, as an investor, twenty percent down is a good rule of thumb. Um, you know, maybe mentally budget twenty five in case you're in a situation where um, the bank doesn't approve you, because at twenty five you pretty much are open to almost every other bank. Um, but 20% is definitely the number. because, And the reason for that, the reason is simple. CMHC, which does the insurance on mortgages, they don't insure rental properties. And so because of that, you have to put 20% at minimum. That, that's, that's where that rule comes from. Got it. This might be a good question also to ask, what is the difference between getting your mortgage you know, at a big five bank and somewhere else? The answer to that is, Absolutely nothing. Um, the difference comes down to the policies. It comes down to, is the bank new? Um, I don't want to list the specific banks, but, you know, um, you know, MCAP and Merix and Home Trust and Street Capital and uh, 
all these banks that are out there, there's about 40 different lenders in Canada that either you've heard of or you haven't. It depends on what their strategy is. Are they trying to build uh, market share? They might offer aggressive rates. If, the, if, 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 if Royal Bank is giving you 2.99, these other banks might give you 2.89. Is it worth the savings? It's up to the consumer. Do you want the ability to walk into a branch? You can do that with Royal Bank, but you can't do that with these other lenders. Do you want the ability to have online access and, and all the luxuries we're used to with the AAA Tier 1 banks like TD and Royal and BMO? That's where the differences come. It comes down to your experience with the bank. From a banking perspective, it is FISCO, the, the Financial Securities Commission of Ontario, I believe, that sets the rules for what the banks are supposed to do when they lend money. And so it's not a difference of, is there a difference with the mortgage? It's a difference of what luxuries and comforts do I need when I'm dealing with that bank. And obviously, that's is that something that you would help the clients to figure out in terms of looking at their profile and looking at their, what they need? You'd say, well, this bank offers you this rate and these services and these features versus this other bank offers you you know, a different rate with different services and different features. Absolutely. And and, and ju- just to go back to that, like with the other banks, like there's, there's so many of them, each of them sometimes has a very good policy in place that will fit for a consumer. I'll, I'll give you an example. If somebody's trying to buy um, their third or fourth or fifth property, sometimes the primary bank that they deal with They've they've come to a limit with how much that bank wants to lend them, but the alternate banks, they don't have those limits in place because you're a new customer to them. So that's where going to the um, secondary banking uh, lenders is beneficial. They'll have policies in place that don't shut you out of the market. And are you giving up anything as as an investor going to those banks, or is it just like you said, you're just giving up things like walking into a branch or online access, but you're not actually giving up any mortgage features. I've, I mean, to be slightly cynical, I mean, I've seen situations where some of the alternate lenders, they'll charge you $50 to make a, a change from monthly payment to bi-weekly. Uh, they'll charge you $25 to send you out a statement. Are these costs excessive? No. But the reason they do it is to make up for the fact that they don't have branches and they have to have some of their admin process that paperwork or the fact that they've given you such a good rate and so to go against those savings they're charging you for that but over the long run if you don't require all that extra service from the bank going with an alternate lender who is also an a lender it's definitely beneficial but it also comes down to a customer's preference and and we're all victim to it right We have a bank that we like to go to. We're used to the people that are there. We feel comfortable being able to walk into a branch and ask questions or grab our debit card and call the number on the back. That's where the differences come. That's where 95% of the differences come down to, in my opinion. Okay. Um, Another question uh, often gets asked, buying in your personal name versus buying an investment property in a company name, is there a difference in the eyes of the lenders and and how do they look at personal versus company name mortgages? I think this is a question that was built for me, um, being that I'm an accountant as well, right? 
Yes. So here's the answer. Um, it doesn't make a difference anymore. And I'll give you a couple of scenarios, and then we can get back to the mortgage um, discussion on this. When you set up a company, the reason people set up a company is to take advantage of the LLC, which is Limited Liability Corporation. And what that means is when you have a numbered company, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, Ontario Inc., it becomes an entity. It is its own breathing, living person. Let's talk about an extreme example. Let's say you own a gas station. And in that gas station, you have five locations within the Toronto area. If, and I'm just making up a scenario, if at the station there's a death or an explosion and somebody gets injured, that person can sue the company. Now, if the company has separate corporations set up for each of its locations, the person who is being, who is doing the suing, the, the, the defendant, uh, the plaintiff, the company that owes the money for the injury, they're only limited to the assets and the liabilities of that single company at the location it happened at. But if as a company, you only had one company for all five locations, you've put all of your locations at risk. And so that's the understanding that has transgressed into the mortgage business. People say, oh, I want to buy two, three, four, ten properties. I want to put it in a company name. If somebody gets hurt at my property, if something happens, I want to make sure it's in a company name. Unfortunately, none of those factors actually come into play because that's where home insurance kicks in. You are not protected as a individual, uh, yourself, Andrew, me, Amit, if we set up a company and rent out a property in its name. What people forget is that when you have that company and you have the mortgage on the property, you are giving your personal guarantee. Unless the bank gives you a mortgage in just the company's name, which they don't, you will be personally responsible. And so setting up a company to hold a mortgage has no advantages than setting it up in your personal name. From a liability, from a liability, okay, so from, just to recap, from a liability perspective, there's no advantage to having the property in your company name. Um, but what about from a, taxation perspective or income perspective, perspective right mm -hmm. from an income perspective whether you're a company or a person you know if you're a person you file a personal tax return if you're a company you file a corporate tax return okay so we're going to get a little bit technical and I'll, I'll try and keep it um, simple as a person when you file your tax return there is a section on the personal tax return for rental properties and in there you get to claim your rent and deduct all the expenses associated with that property. The property tax, the maintenance, any repairs, the cost of setting up the mortgage, legal fees, you name it. Anything that it costs you to run that rental property is deductible on your personal income. And after that, you pay income tax. And the income tax is dependent on how much money you make. Let's say the average person pays 30% taxes or even 35% taxes. In a company, when you run a company, whether it's a rental property company or a, a Tim Hortons or a donut store or a gas station or a taxi company, it doesn't matter what company you run, there is a small business tax 
uh, amount that people are seeking. When your company makes less than half a million dollars a year, you only pay 15% tax. And so that's a very attractive, taxable amount. So if you create a company, put the rental income in the company, and then take the deductions, whatever the income is on that rental property, you only pay 15% tax instead of 30. Here is the kicker. Here is the part that people either don't uh, know or can get trapped in. When there's money left in a corporation, you are not allowed to take the money out just by withdrawing the money because it either becomes a dividend or a salary or a shareholder um, taking money out of the company. That money will be taxed as 30% on your personal taxes. So if we make a small example, you have $1,000 left in the company, you would pay $150 in tax. Now you have $850 left. If you take the 850 from the company, you got to put that 850 into your personal income tax. And on that 850, you'll pay 30%. So when you work out the math, it almost works out to the same amount if you had just taken the whole amount on your personal taxes. The, the other part that I have to explain to clients is when you're filing corporate taxes, you've got to hire an accountant. You've got to pay their fees. You have to register a company. There's fees for that. So in my experience, the cost of running the company generally doesn't outweigh the tax savings that people are looking for because of the scenario I just described between personal taxes and how much you make on the corporate. That's very helpful. I think a lot of people will, will want to even rewind this uh, that answer to there and listen to that again. Because that's that's a, such a common such a common uh, such a common misconception, like you said, that people think, well, if I just buy it in the company, I'm going to save all this money because I'm paying less taxes. Well, yeah, but the money just sits in the company and you can't access it. And as soon as you take that money out, you get taxed on it again, one way or the other. So, um, is there a tipping point? Is there a tipping point? Oh, sorry, I'll let you finish. Yeah, go ahead. One more thing to add in: over the past few years. Almost every one of the major banks has taken away the program of giving mortgages in a company name. And the reason they're doing that is because they also know this and don't want people to fall into that misconception. In the past three years, National Bank, Scotiabank have both taken it off their um, policies and their offerings. Just to show the listener that the banks are starting to remove that ability because they know it's not beneficial for the client. Very interesting. Is there a tipping point, though, where, you know, I've heard some people say, well, when you reach a certain number of properties, then it definitely makes sense to uh, incorporate and buy all those properties in, your, in a company name. Is there, does that tipping point exist? And if so, like where, where is that? Or, or when would you personally advise someone to, to be buying their properties in a company name? It, it never, there's never a tipping point. Um, this comes down to different strategies. If a client, so the way a corporation is, the way a corporation is set up is that for people that have the patience as well as the self-conviction to leave the money in the corporation, if they do that over a 30-year career, the money that's left in the corporation, they can access it when they're retired. 
that is the purpose of leaving money in a corporation at a lower tax rate. But we're all victim to the same problem. We see money in a bank account, we want to access it or we want to do something. In terms of answering the question, is there a number of properties you should have before you incorporate? The answer is no, because on the personal tax return, every deduction that you're allowed on the corporate side is allowed on the personal side. So whatever deductions you want to make are available there. Right. So the reason to transfer it over to the company is if you don't want to declare income and you have the ability to leave money in the corporation and not touch it, that's when you do it. Right. Well, that's uh, that's been, I think, worth the listen to this episode just right there, just to get the answer to that question, because I think that's something that comes up time and time again, maybe not with the first time condo investor, but certainly somebody who's been there, uh, got one or two units, and they're um, thinking about that question, should I incorporate or not? They're getting a lot of people maybe telling them, oh, well, you should incorporate. You've got this big real estate investing thing going on. Um, but I even do see it too with first-time investors. You probably do too. They come to you and say, "I'm buying my first, I'm buying this investment property. Um, you know, it's my first one," uh, and they really get stressed out about this decision: uh, should I buy it in a company or a personal name? And it becomes a big thing for people. I will walk them away from buying it in a company name because I know the savings and the extra headaches are not worth it. Um, doesn't make sense to own rental properties in a corporate name if it's for rental purposes. It only makes sense, going back again to the question before, when you have the ability to leave the money in the corporation and then you are not paying as much tax. But, you know, we're all human beings and I'm telling you, nine, 99 out of 100 people, not even 9 out of 10, 99 out of 100 people will access the money. And when they do, the tax savings just got washed away that they were trying to to save. And instead, they actually incurred thousands of dollars in accounting fees and setup costs for that company. So uh, when an investor comes to me and says, I'd like to buy it in an investment company, my job is to educate them, and I will try and steer them away from that decision because it generally doesn't make sense for the average investor. But if they are adamant on it, it is something that is doable and the banks do allow it, some of them that are left, and the advantages are there. Again, it sounds like a broken record for those people that can leave the money in the company and leave it for when they want to retire. That's great, Amit. Um, why don't we wrap things up there? I think that's a great point to leave it. If people want to get a hold of you, where's the best place to, to find you um, online or otherwise? Um, I mean, they can definitely contact you, and then you are definitely uh, a point of contact for me. But uh, you can visit, uh, visit uh, my website, which is amitpuri.ca. Um, you can also give me a call at 416-230-4499, as well as uh, my email is mortgage at amitpuri.ca. Um, I'm happy to help anybody uh, that is looking for guidance, whether it's on the accounting side or mortgage side or even both. And uh, one thing that I'm a proponent of here is it's always good to have a strong agent like yourself, Andrew, on the line when we're discussing this because getting a mortgage is not just a part of buying real estate. You also want to know which properties are good, where to park your money, which, property, which investment condos in the city are 
are worth it. And you know, over the years, I've seen that you've guided clients through um, the right decision. Uh, I think what makes a great agent like yourself is that you know, if you don't think something's a right investment, you'll you'll get a client to walk away from it. And vice versa, if it's a great investment, you'll get them to to believe in it the way we both do. So um, obviously getting a hold of me is easy, but and getting a hold of me through you is also easy. That's great. Well, thank you very much for the kind words, Amit, and um, appreciate your time, giving us your time today. Hopefully we can have you on the show again soon. And uh, yeah. yeah, just appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. okay, have a great week. You too. Bye. 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 Okay, that was my interview with Ahmed Puri. I hope you enjoyed that and I hope you learned something. I really appreciated Ahmed going deep on some of those questions and really getting behind the why, um, why the, the, the rates are the way they are and why he's recommending you know you buy in a personal name as opposed to a company name. Um, his depth of knowledge, I think, was really on display there and we, uh, we hopefully all learned a lot from today's episode. So once again, if you want to see the show notes for this episode, head on over to truecondos.com slash Amit. And of course, as always, appreciate your support for the show. Appreciate all the listeners out there who are listening. And if you would like to support the show, you can leave a review on iTunes or a rating. That would be much appreciated. And of course, make sure you do subscribe to uh, become a True Condo subscriber over at truecondos.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the True Condos Podcast. Remember, your positive reviews make a big difference to the show. To learn more about condo investing, become a True Condos subscriber by visiting truecondos.com.